Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 14. Last time we were here, we saw that Jesus fulfilled the Passover as that sacrificial lamb. Uh, if you read Exodus 12, it goes into detail about the Passover. And you see Exodus 12 is really a foreshadowing of the events that happened in the New Testament with Jesus. In addition, you see a contrast. We saw a contrast between two biblical historical figures in Scripture that were as far apart as you can get, Jesus and Judas. Today we're going to go from the Passover Supper to the Lord's Supper, which are really two separate but contiguous events. And we'll see how the Lord's Supper was a natural progression of also predicated upon the uh, Passover Supper. Starting with verse 14. It says, And when the hour had come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him. And he said to them, With fervent desire I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. In Greek, you have a, a double positive here. He says, With fervent desire I have desired. And there's a stressing there. Jesus is earnestly desiring to eat the Passover with his disciples prior to his sufferings. The question is why? Well, there's a few reasons. The first one is he is to give them a greater understanding at this point that he himself, Jesus, is that Passover lamb and its implications and their subsequent preparation for trials. Okay, It's like, hey, guys, this is it. You've got to get it tonight because... I'm going to the cross. He's told them before. They kind of didn't want to hear it. They didn't understand it. And now he's got to make it all clear to them. The second thing is Jesus, as a man, desired to spend his last moments on earth with his closest friends. And thirdly, Jesus, as God, it shows that God desires a close relationship with his creation. If you wouldn't mind, turn to Hebrews 8, starting in verse 7. Hebrews 8, verse 7. And actually, uh, the writer of the author of Hebrews is going to, in this passage, reference back to Jeremiah 31. Verse 7, it says, for if, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This starts the prophecy uh, in Jeremiah 31, really. And not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. A few things. A covenant is, we know, a covenant is agreement. It's a legal agreement. And the only reason why God made a, a new covenant with them was because they broke the first covenant. 
So he had to make a new covenant. And in Jeremiah 31, he speaks about that new covenant coming. And that covenant is by grace. It's by Christ. And what's interesting is they used to have to see the law. Everybody would say, know the law, know the law. Now the new covenant under Christ was the law would be written in their minds and in their hearts. So what you see is this, 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 this progression of a relationship happening through Christ, right? So God wants a relationship with us. You know, many even in mainline religion don't understand this whole relationship thing. God is not personal to them. They may think it's weird if you say, well, I speak to God. Well, wait, don't you just say your prayers and go to bed? No, I speak to God. I talk to him. He's personal. He's personal to me. I remember uh, my wife one time after she was pregnant, she had some complications. She allowed me to say the story. Usually she doesn't like it, but this time she gave me permission. But she went to the doctor and she was having some trouble. And the doctor, they got into a side conversation. And the doctor said, well, how do you deal? How did you deal with these things, these events, these trials? And she says, well, I speak to God. And he said, well, does he answer you? She said, yeah, not in an audible voice, but he speaks to my heart. So she comes home with some prescriptions, and I look at them, and I, you know, study physiology and anatomy and stuff. And I look at the prescriptions. I said, babe, what did you tell him? He gave you antipsychotics. He thinks you're psychotic. <laughs> she goes, I, I just told him I talked to God. Well, so people, they don't get it. They don't get it, right? But if God exists and he created our relationships that we experience with our spouses, with our kids, and some of you with your pets, sometimes you'll love those pets more than you love people, but it's a relationship kind of thing, right? If he's the one who created the ability for us to have relationships and not to be robots or drones, then wouldn't it make sense that he would want to partake in a relationship with you? It's just logic. Sometimes it's just logic makes a lot of sense here. So I talk to God every day, and if that makes me weird, then so be it. I'm weird. And I don't always like the answers I get from him, but that's a topic for another Sunday. Verse 16. Jesus says, I will no longer eat of it until fulfilled in the, into the kingdom of God. Going back to Luke, the Passover he's speaking about. Obviously, he won't eat of it anymore as Jesus is going to be crucified in some hours from this point. But there's also a deeper picture here. The Passover, in, its, in, its, in our understanding of it back then, is no longer has the same spiritual significance when the lamb, the ultimate sacrifice, finally is to be sacrificed once and for all. I want to read Hebrews again. Go back to Hebrews, this time chapter 10. And when you read Hebrews in its entirety, you understand why it was written to the Hebrews. He helps the Jewish people to understand the fulfillment of Christ. He takes them through the Old Testament and brings them through Christ as the fulfillment. Hebrews 10, starting with verse 5. Therefore, when he, Jesus, came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me, speaking to the Father. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written to, of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. 
He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. In the Hebrew, I believe the word was kofar. It was a covering. It was a temporary uh, covering for their sins. But the sins really were never taken away until the final sacrifice to Christ was offered once and for all. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for the sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Okay, so the, the Passover, Jesus fulfilling the Passover. Okay, there's a progression there. The next feast on the docket, so to speak, is the great marriage supper of the Lamb. You can find this in Isaiah 25, 6 through 8, allusions to it. Uh, Luke 14, the parable of the great supper. And Revelation 19, 7 through 9. The marriage supper of the Lamb just prior to the door of heaven opening up and Jesus coming out on the white horse and his saints following him, indicating with the chronological terms such as then that prior to the door opening and Jesus returning to earth, we were in heaven with him partaking of that marriage supper. So that's that final feast. Similarly, again, the progressions. You see the law gave way to grace when the fullness of the time had come. The law had its purpose. It had to give way to grace. So the animal sacrifices gave way to the Christ's ultimate sacrifice. And the Passover, the redemption from, from Egypt, from the slavery of Egypt, pointed to, after that you had the pointing to the future spiritual redemption from sin, which is far worse to be in slavery to sin versus slavery to mankind. Okay, Through the cross, that redemption from sin was taking place. We keep going. We're on a timeline here. And the last thing is, the complete redemption, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what do I mean the complete redemption? Is there anybody here, raise your hand, who doesn't sin? Okay, so we got that good doctrinally. That's good. We still sin. So the complete redemption, the fullness of the redemption comes when we're, we're, we're to be with the Lord and that part of us is stripped from us, the sin portion of our flesh. It, it goes. So that's the last step. So you see a pattern. You see the many foreshadowings and the fulfillment in Scripture. In verse 18, he says, For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Same point here, pointing to that glorious feast where the eternal plan of human redemption is to take place, fulfilled. Verse 19, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So you see, there's a purlieu from the Passover supper to the Lord's Supper. There's a, a, a delineation line here. Now, the bread. Uh, Jews for Jesus did a great job last year talking about how you see the, the Messiah in the Passover. They talked about the three pieces of bread, the three uh, unleavened bread, the matzo stacked up, representing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the middle matzo, and Jewish people still do it today when they celebrate Passover. They take the middle matzo out, representing Christ, the bread of life, and they break it. And then it's uh, wrapped and it's hidden. And then they bring it back out and divide it among the people. Is that a picture of Jesus as the bread of life or what? So Jesus is a fulfillment there in that portion of scripture. But also bread was a basic staple of life that everyone could, could afford to keep them alive. 
Bread nourished me as it nourished you. In the Middle Eastern cultures, they would eat with their hands and they would break the bread and hand it to somebody else and then they would break it. And it was a picture of the same bread that's nourishing me is nourishing you. And there's also that fellowship that was going on. Eating with someone, there was in the Greek, that word is koinonia. It was a, a, a fellowship between people, right? And you would become one with them. That's why uh, back in the day, observant Jews would not eat with Gentiles because it would signify that if they ate with Gentiles, they would become one with the Gentiles and they felt that the Gentiles were unclean because of their polytheism and all the other things that they did. Now, if you take the whole bread thing and make it into a spiritual application with the Lord's Supper, I have, a, I have bread now. I break of it and I give it to you. You break of it and you pass it on. Not only are we being nourished from the same loaf, you know, physiologically, but now in the Lord's Supper, it's symbolic of breaking the bread, giving it. Uh, Christ was originally broken, and then we give it to each other. The same Jesus that nourishes us spiritually nourishes you spiritually, and you, you see that, that fellowship come together. Now, the bread, uh, again, was to remember Jesus' sacrifice while becoming one with the church. And when I say that, I don't mean... Calvary Chapel Crossfield, I don't mean Calvary, I mean the church. Not just in the United States, in Asia, in Africa, in Europe. All believers together are one body as the church. And I believe personally that whatever is done here, and it's not just what I believe, but the Bible is clear about that. Even the temple, when the the standards were given to build the, the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and the tabernacle and the temple, They were strict guidelines that had to be built because the Bible says that whatever is done here that God instructs us to to do, there's a copy of that in heaven also. So this whole fellowship thing, I personally believe that when we go to people's houses as Christians and we fellowship and we have a great time and, you know, you go to a wedding celebration and you want to capture that moment, but then you go home and you, you go to work and that's a bummer. And then you just want to fellowship again. I believe that when we go to be with the Lord, it's, nobody has to work anymore, which is kind of good. But we're all in fellowship with each other, and we're with the Lord. So it, it's a, I believe that there'll be more of a, I don't know, not as much separation with our flesh. There'll be more of a sharing spiritually. We'll always have that closeness together, and we'll be with the Lord for eternity. Again, it's my opinion. But here's something interesting. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, talking about the Lord's Supper, he says that, he says, let a man, he says, if whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So he talks about not eating it in an unworthy manner. At the time, the Corinthian church, people were getting drunk People were having feasts and then coming there and the poor people had nothing to eat. It, they, were, they were acting as individuals. It was a problem. But he said, but let a man examine himself. Let us examine ourselves, see where we, we have fault in ourselves, correct it, and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What I think we need to do is, as Christians, we always need to examine our relationships in light of what Jesus did for us. If you think about it, his sacrifice on the cross, opened the door to unlimited forgiveness, God forgiving us, okay? So conversely, we also have to open the door of our hearts to unlimited forgiveness to other people. And you see that in the parable of the unforgiving servant. 
And that's one of the things that his sacrifice did for us. So the question is, is there a Christian that we don't get along with? Well, we better get used to it and try to get along with them because we'll be with them forever in eternity. But I always say this. It, the cool thing is that you, when we're perfected and we go up to be the Lord, we lose our sin and that person loses their sin and there's, there's no issue anymore. Again, it's just what I believe. But the question is, do, you know, Jesus said that, he said, by your love for each other, people will know that you're Christians. By your love for each other, by our love for each other, the world will know, hey, they're Christians because of that love. But why is it that so much in Christianity, uh, there's so much bickering and division and fighting? And I don't like this person, you know? We have to examine our own hearts and say, is there something that is in ourselves? Are we above correction? How do we take correction? Proverbs 9 says that the person who can't take correction is a fool. Do we submit to one another? Forget about the husband and wife thing. Prior to that in Ephesians, it says that as believers, we should submit to one another. Or do we just think that we're always right and we always have the right answers? Do we repent when we wrong somebody? Or do we just kind of ignore it and hope that time heals all wounds? See, these are the things that we have to look at, uh, even outspokenness. I'll tell you, things come back at you. I remember when I was on staff at Calvary Chapel Old Bridge, and I would be there between the services, and I would you know, work there and, and greet people and do what you did when you're on staff. And uh, you know, I was always outspoken. People knew me as outspoken. Maybe uh, a term today you could say I had a big mouth. But I remember making a little bit of a provocative remark to Pastor Lloyd about friendship. And he didn't address it right there, but when he went to the pulpit, he addressed it. And he didn't say my name, which was very nice of him. <laughs> but my wife was sitting in service, and I wasn't sitting with her because I was on duty, so to speak. And she heard what Lloyd said. And I'll tell you, out of a church, out of 5,000 people, she knew immediately he was talking about me. So she comes after service and she goes, that was you that he was talking about, wasn't it? I'm like, how did you know? So you know what? When we're outspoken and when we try so hard for people to see us, what we're doing is we're not meshing with the body of Christ. We're saying, look at me. I'm outspoken. Look at me. You know, I'm, I'm controversial. But you know what? The more I live as a Christian, the more I see that that's not what God wants for us. He wants us to act as a unit. Some of us are a foot. Some of us are an eye, some of us are a hand, and if we don't work together, there's a biological term for that, it's called cancer. Something goes way off where it's not supposed to do, and it takes the energy of the body and it causes dysfunction in the body. So, one other illustration that I want to make. I brought in some visual aids. This is a police ballistic vest. Now, I haven't gone off the deep end, trust me, there's a good application here. This vest is, is comprised of these fibers. This is one of the fibers. It's an aramid fiber. It's got a high tensile strength, but with a sharp scissor, I can cut this in half. What's interesting about this vest is if you take these fibers and you multiply them by a 1,000 and weave them into a weave, what you get, and this is like a 15, 20-year-old vest, what you get is layers of Kevlar that are basket-woven together and layered upon each other and they can stop a bullet. I actually tried it. You see the hole here? So even after 15 years, all these little fibers together, tight with each other, woven together, can stop a bullet from killing the body. And you know what? 
there's a great application that could be made with the body of Christ as individual believers. Well, two things I want you to take from this. Number one is, don't worry, I'm not going to give it to somebody and do a demonstration today. And the second thing is, no, you can't borrow it after service. But the point I'm trying to make is, and I think it's clear, when you look at this and you see the hole of a, of a 40 caliber round that got stopped after a few, uh, a few layers, is that one of these fibers by themselves can't do anything. But when they're all woven together and they're tight and they're working as a unit and each fiber is not out for his own idea, they can stop a bullet. Isn't that amazing? So, to bring it home, um, when we're resurrected, there will be no personal agendas. There will be no look at me, there will be look at Jesus. And I'm okay with that. That's great. So, I think with the whole Lord's Supper idea and picture of is, is that no doubt we're remembering Jesus. And that is, he is our main focus. But as an outcropping of remembering Jesus and what he did for us, forgiveness comes into play. The body of Christ comes into play. Unity comes into play. And these things are all an outcropping of understanding and remembering who Jesus is. Verse 19. And he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, transubstantiation is a big word, and uh, it's, a, it's a doctrine that believes that Jesus actually, every time we take communion, the juice or the wine becomes literally his blood and the uh, bread literally becomes his body and we ingest through our digestive tract the body and blood literally of Jesus. And this, and this is not accurate for two reasons. Number one, if you take bread, the communion bread that we use, and you leave it out long enough and it, it becomes damp, it gets moldy and it starts to, you know, it, it, it rots. The Bible says that and the Christ's body would never see corruption. It says that you know, he would never see corruption, so that can't be. The other thing is it's for, forbidden in uh, Levitical law to eat human flesh or drink blood. Leviticus 3.17, Leviticus 7.26, Leviticus 17.10. And if Jesus turned the wine into blood and he drank it, he drank his own blood, which is just bizarre. It's not, it's, well, no, seriously, it's not, it doesn't make sense. It's not logical. The wine was symbolic of the blood of the new covenant because Jesus fulfilled that blood covenant once and for all. It's kind of a, um, not a, maybe a pleasant topic to think about blood, but it's a reality. And if we say, well, that's gross, and why did God do that? We have to think about why it was done because of our sin. And our sin is a lot grosser <laughs> than this, these pictures of the sacrifices. Our sin had to be dealt with. See, I sometimes look on... Uh, you know, the news and see uh, what people are doing to their children, what strangers do to children, what people do to each other. And it really bums me out. But see, God sees it aggregately. He sees all the sins of the world at the same time for the course of humanity. It's amazing he didn't just blow us up and start all over again. So, you know, in the Old Testament, the lamb, uh, the, the sins of the people were not atoned for until the lamb was sacrificed and the blood was taken by the priest and went into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled the blood before the mercy seat and God accepted that sacrifice and they were covered for the time being. And by the same token, Jesus, again, was the fulfillment of that and he covered our sins for eternity, for past, present, and future. Verse 20, it says, Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup, this cup 
is the new covenant of my blood which is shed for you. He took the cup after supper. There were two cups mentioned in Luke's gospel. There were four cups traditionally in the Passover service. And uh, it comes from the four promises of Exodus 6, 6 through 7. In the Passover meal, the third cup was to be taken after the meal. It was the cup of redemption. Uh, in Exodus, it says, God starts by saying, I will redeem you. He makes four promises. In the third cup, he says, I will redeem you. So the Passover cup was coincidentally um, coincided with the redemption. And again, verse 20, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So you see that, again, could it be that the third cup that he took coincided with the cup of redemption? Or could it have been totally a separate cup and he would have taken all four cups in the Passover meal and he took this cup to start the new Lord's Supper? And there's a, there's a debate on that. People kind of go either way. It's possible that he held off on the fourth cup, uh, the completion of the Passover meal, until he drinks again in the kingdom of heaven. Or he just refused to drink the fruit of the vine anymore after finishing the four cups. So I, I don't want to confuse you. Honestly, I don't know exactly what happened here because Luke only mentions two cups. But I can say this. I know what the significance is. So it doesn't matter to me either way how it worked out. The significance is fulfillment. He was the fulfillment of the Passover. Hebrews 10, verses 10 and verse 12, talk about the once and for all fulfillment. Um, you know, he made that sacrifice for us. And now Passover really has a different meaning. And again, I've eaten Passover meals at people's houses, but it has a different meaning now, okay, since Jesus fulfilled it. Passover looks back to the deliverance from the slavery of Egypt, and the Passover meal looks forward to the redemption of the deliverance from humans out of the slavery of sin. Now, that's already been completed. So the Lord's Supper was, was instituted because the Lord's Supper, now when we take the Lord's Supper, it looks back to the redemption. Jesus is redeeming us from sin. And it looks forward to his coming in glory, the fulfillment of the redemption, the uh, marriage supper of the Lamb. So you see the, the progression here. It's a new type of memorial supper, and it's a yearning for completion in Christ because we're not complete here without Christ. Now, verse 21. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table, and truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. A little bit of a recap on Judas. We went into great detail last week, but... Matthew 26 says it would be better if Judas had never been born. It's a pretty strong statement. So how can you hold Judas accountable if what he did was foretold in Scripture? You can see that in Psalm 41, 9, Psalm 55, 12 through 14. There's a doctrine out there that says God is actually the, the author of evil. He authors evil. He causes people commit to commit evil, and then he punishes them when they commit that evil. And Judas pretty much had no free will. God caused him to do it, and he punished him for it. Well, so basically God is causing damnation on this man who had no ability to stop what he was doing. I don't buy that. I don't believe that. Because the Bible tells me that God is not the author of evil. It says that God is light and there is no darkness at all in him. First John tells us that. And that sin is a choice. And it's only through the absence of God's precepts is there sin. It kind of reminds me of light. 
there's light in this room right now. But if you were to shut off all the lights, it would be dark. Dark is the absence of light. However, you could take a flashlight and turn it on and pierce through the darkness again. But no one, to my knowledge, has, has made a dark light, a device that you can hold in your hand and click it and everything goes dark even though there's lights. So it only works in one way. And it's the same thing with God. God is love. God is light. God is truth. And in the absence of God, when you choose to rebel against him, when you choose to sin, in the absence of following his precepts, you have darkness. And that's where sin comes from. It's the absence of, of who God is and being in God. Just like with Adam and Eve. They could have lived forever had they chosen to stay within God's precepts and stay in that relationship with him. When they choose to, to kind of put that to the side of their minds and do their own thing and rebel against him, that's when darkness came. Okay. So... Some people will even take the thing with Judas because if we, if we, you know, and there's this big movement now to say that <laughs> I've I read it, uh, it's new evidence that Judas wasn't such a bad guy. You know, now let's feel sorry for Judas. You know, he wasn't, the, the Gnostic Gospels come out and, um, you know, they're, they're translations of a translation and uh, they, they would try to paint Judas in a different light. And actually you can make that, if you really believe that, you can bring that to us and say if we're born in sin, how can we be judged? And what that leads to is going down the road of blaming God for sin. Now you have the wrong perspective again. Now what we're doing is saying that we're okay. God's the one with the problem. Wearsby says on Judas, quote, Divine foreknowledge does not destroy human responsibility or accountability. Joshua 24:15, he says to the people, Make a decision. Who are you going to serve? Choose this day whom you will serve. Will it be the false gods or will it be you know, the true God? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Uh, Jeremiah 29:13. God says, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. But you have to seek me. We're given free will because free will reveals true love. And being a police officer for a long time, we I have a, 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 a large, or many occasions to deal with women who've been abused. A woman will come in and, uh, you know, we try to help them out through domestic violence stuff and, uh, you know, get them help if they're being abused. But a lot of times they go back to the abuser. Now, they could say, well, I love that person. But if, if love, if you think what you feel for that person is based on fear or compulsion or anything like that or abuse or brainwashing, is that really love? It's not. It's the same thing with God. God doesn't force us to love him because then it's really not love. Love is a choice. You choose to love someone. You choose to, you know, to share that, that most precious thing with that person. But again, with God, we have that free will to choose him, and that reveals what true love is. God doesn't want us to love him because we're forced to, and that's why Christians a lot of times can, can suffer. I think one of the reasons is because if we just became Christian so that we would always feel great physically and we would always have a great life. Hey, become a Christian. Your life will be wonderful all the time. Every day you'll wake up and do cartwheels. Well, it doesn't happen like that because really, and I think about it, if God allowed us that life, then we're only loving him for what he can do for us. You see what I'm saying? So the Bible says that the rain falls on the wicked and the just. Same thing with trials. Trials come to the wicked and the just. See? And we talked about um, 
this in the service last time that, well, what about if we're born in sin, how can we, you know, we're judged? Well, how does that work? Well, number one, through the Holy Spirit, we have the power not to commit sin. Through the Holy Spirit, we can choose to say no to sin and have the power to do that because God lives in us. But at the same time, even if we do sin, Jesus says that we have passed from death into life. So even the sins that we have committed and will continue to commit have been bought and paid for, and they won't be used against us. So it's great. I mean, you, you couldn't ask for anything better than that. It's, you, know, you can't ask for a better deal than that. And if you think about it, choices. All of our problems in our life are the result of someone's sin. And, some, you know, of course, we'll blame most of our problems on somebody else, the way they treated us, what they did to us, what happened to me as a child. Uh, but a lot of our sins also are as a result of our own choices and our own sinful choices and what we have done. I counseled a young man not too long ago, and he was telling me how bad his life was. Some addiction problems, some problems with the law, problems with this, problems with that. And I said, bro, look, at, look within yourself. Be a little introspective and see some of the choices that you've made and now why you're in this problem. And, you know, it helped them to see what, what the real root of the problem was. So sin is the cause of all of our problems. Now, God doesn't damn anyone, I believe. Um, those who reject him damn themselves. Matthew 25:41 is very interesting, where in the judgment, the sheep are separated from the goats, uh, the ones on the right hand versus the ones on the left hand. The, one, the sheep will go into everlasting you know, bliss, and the other ones will, will go to hell. But it says specifically to the ones on the left hand, depart from me and go into hell, uh, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. I find that very interesting because it almost seems like the, you know, hell was prepared for the rebellious angels, the ones that fell in the rebellion. And man didn't have to go there, but man chose to go there. He says, go into you know, hell, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. So nobody has to go there. Now we know, again, what Jesus' purpose was for instituting the Lord's Supper. Number one was remembrance. That's the key. Jesus is always the center. We always have to look at everything in the scripture in light of Jesus Christ. But understand, it's a snowball effect from that remembrance, from looking at the sacrifice, from looking at his forgiveness for our sins, from looking at his, uh, you know, our passage from, from death unto life. It go, it's a snowball effect, and there's other things that come out from that. Okay, we were forgiven. We have to forgive. You know, we were shown mercy. We need to show mercy. And it's like a mirror. It's, it's reflected off of us. And again, the third thing is unity. I think that's something that gets lost. When we break the bread today and we're going to do that, you each take a piece of bread and it represents you, we're all one with each other. You look at the person next to you, hey, you, we're, we're, we're one with each other. And that's the thing that I think sometimes gets lost in the body of Christ. So to be introspective, we need to have the ability to examine ourselves and to root out any personal agendas and idols that we hold on to so dearly that cause us to stick out like a sore thumb when we're in the body of Christ. I don't mind being a foot. A foot supports the body. I don't mean being, mind being an eye. But I certainly wouldn't want to be a sore thumb in the body of Christ. We're not individuals, and we need not behave like individuals. And I pray again today after the sermon and reading the scripture that we get a new perspective on the Lord's Supper. Let's pray with each other. And that's 